Good morning. The reading today is from Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 6. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. So many of you are still here. I was wondering if that was going to get a real thanks be to God or kind of like, I don't know. I have to be honest with you. Um, there was a real temptation uh, to put a few verses from last week uh, in, in, in the text for this week so that you would hear something a little less jarring at the top of the reading uh, than wives submit to your husbands as the very first thing uh, read this morning. Um, uh, th- this is one of those sections of scripture where if you kind of already are a little bit suspicious about totalizing truth claims, uh, you might come to something like this and just say, I'm absolutely out. This is one of the passages that makes me want to give up on the scriptures altogether. If it, if it says this, what it seems to be saying, then I, I just can't be on board with any of it. Um, this is certainly one of the places where, uh, as, as a pastor, I, I, I might wish that we could skip over if we weren't moving sort of passage by passage through the letter, and it would be really obvious that we skipped over it. Um, I, I might like to have picked something a little more pal- palatable. And so I want to say, if you're visiting with us today, welcome. Um, we're so glad you're here. I am, I am sorry. I wish I could have warned you that we were going to be dealing with a pretty uh, controversial section of the scriptures this morning, but maybe you'll get a, a good sense of who we are as a church uh, when we feel squeezed, um, and I have felt squeezed. I literally uh, rolled into church this morning late because I was trying this morning to pack in. I was like, let me read two more commentaries. I'm tr- I've been editing this thing up until two seconds uh, after the teaching text was finished, and I was like, I got to go. Um, so... Uh, I would love to deftly maneuver uh, through, through this text and gently show you how it is much less offensive than you think it is, um, how we can basically dismiss this part for a scholarly reason and we can dismiss this part for a, a cultural reason. Um, but here's the thing. I actually don't think I can do that. I don't think I can take the offense um, 
out of this text, especially when we hear it in our time and place in history. Uh, I don't think it's possible to scrub it clean of, of, any, of any controversy, but um, uh, what, what I think we might be able to do together is locate the offense of the text in a slightly different place than we first hear it. Because with our modern ears and our time and place in history, we hear the offense in a certain place. And I actually think um, it's probably located in a slightly different place that maybe paints all of us um, a little more than we would like. Um, I'll just get this uh, off my chest. I think this text is offensive when I first hear it too. Um, uh, Maybe not for the same ones that you do, but I I bristle because this passage feels like it's patriarchal to me. Uh, It makes me sort of tense up, even as it was being read. We were like, you know, talking about reading this text, like, hey, don't add any emphasis, just read it super neutral, and then get out, and then I'm going to get up there and try to, like, backpedal as fast as I can. But um, I bristle because submit and submission sound like dirty words to me, like somehow Marriage means quietly giving uh, up to the whims and demands of only one party in the relationship, no matter how they choose to act. Um, I bristle, really, because um, Paul gives instructions for slaves on how to live in an unjust system instead of simply outright condemning that unjust system and demanding its overthrow. I think we hear that, that, those instructions and we think, hey, you should be saying something different, which is like, throw the whole system over and, and let's have a revolution. So, needless to say, I've already confessed, I read several more commentaries this week than normal. And what I have actually come to, to, to think and believe about this text is that it's actually revolutionary in itself, and it, it is subversive for the context that it would have been received in, and, and I think it's actually subversive and revolutionary for us, maybe for slightly different reasons. So let me get into what I mean by that. So the original context it is important to know. It kind of feels, if you're reading, and the commentaries note this, it kind of feels like you come to this section and it's out of the blue. We've just had this passage on um, put on this new nature of Christ, which was one for us by this uh, mysterious, foolish um, action almost of Jesus on the cross dying for us. Like, how is that a way to begin a revolution of love? But there's the resurrection, and then all of us can be healed and forgiven. And there's these real specific instructions. Put off this old way of life with anger and malice and, and selfishness and, and treating sex like it's only about bodies and, and treating uh, life like it's only about our agenda. Put that off and put on a new way of life that is defined by compassion and kindness and, and the opposite of self-centeredness. And, and we just got through last week looking at what it means to have a practice of putting off that old life and putting on the new life. And then all of a sudden you get to like, wives submit to your husbands. Like, where, where is this coming from? Um, it's important to note that Paul's, Paul is not inventing a, a, a code of ethics to govern first century households. Well, these, these types of passages in the scriptures and in the, the, the you know, widely circulated literature of the, of the time were called household codes. Paul is not putting forth instructions onto a blank canvas. Like, here's some ideas I have about how wives should be and husbands should be and, and children and parents should be. He's, he's responding 
to existing norms, and he's even intentionally showing where the way of Jesus differs from those existing norms, and that's really important. Many of the ancient world's rulers and philosophers had put forth and upheld certain guidelines to govern various relationships in society. So philosophers had their own household codes that had become the norms in the Roman Empire. Paul's not asserting something new. He's responding to what everyone would have had in the background of their mind and consciousness about the way we live in first century Rome. So Aristotle, for example, a name you've obviously heard, um, had a large section of his writing devoted to household codes, and perhaps even more than Colossians, they kind of fall on our ears uh, as modern readers with a little bit of offense. So I'll just give you a little Aristotle. Uh, I know it's early, uh, but oh man, my my accent color is red, blood red, and you're not going to be able to read it, but it says Aristotle above that. So uh, I'll, I'll try to help you in any other places. Where of household management, we have seen there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, which has been discussed already. If you want to read some more Aristotle, you can know what he's talking about. Uh, another of a father and the third of a husband. A husband and father, we saw rules, rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, over his wife a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. Everyone on board with that? Aristotle, folks. Um, Just as the elder and full-grown is superior to the younger and more mature. A little while later, Aristotle, even more scandalous, the relation of the male to the female is of this kind, but there the inequality is permanent. Wow. So just be glad you're not going to First Presbyterian Church of Aristotle this morning. Um, So there were, I say, I read that to say there were, Codes, there were societal norms that were established in the first century. One of the biggest critiques, shocking perhaps to us, but one of the biggest critiques of Christianity as it was an emerging movement, sort of this seed growing up in the Roman Empire, was they did not adhere in many places to those norms, to those social codes. They were seen as a dangerously revolutionary movement because around the table of Christ, anyone could gather, no matter what their race or gender or social standing. So Christianity was seen as subversive and dangerous within the Roman Empire because they were trying to, in some significant places, break down those barriers inside the social structure of the Roman Empire that the the, the leaders and philosophers of that time thought were necessary for society society to function uh, cohesively and well. The Roman historian Tacitus, for example, went so far as to say Christians had a hatred of the human race based on the fact that Christians forsook their familial and social obligations. So one of the, this is really important. Uh, I'm going to hit on this a little bit later, but Christians weren't Thrown, into, thrown to the lions in Rome because they quietly and personally believed in the God of forgiveness. They were, they were thrown to the lions because they were upending the social norms. They were saying, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord, and they were looking for how that fell out into the rest of life. So they weren't thrown to the lions because they quietly believed in forgiveness and because they were singing hymns. They were thrown to the lions because they were upending in some real way the social realities that governed the norms of the Roman Empire. And they were saying, we can't have this. We have a way of life. No thank you to your emerging uh, sort of Judaism sect that's growing. So just a few verses ahead of this controversial passage that we just read, one of the ones I kind of wanted to slip in uh, to have read before this morning, um, was, a, was a verse that would have been widely offensive, widely offensive 
to the socio-political realities of first century Roman Empire. Here it is. This is from just before this section in Colossians 3. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now that is what Paul has already said. So by the time he gets to these household codes, we need to remember that he has already said this. And so whatever he's responding to, it also has to be viewed in light of what he's already said. So this verse turned the social and cultural norms on their head and led to Christians being seen as dangerous to the social order. So when Paul is writing out the instructions of these household codes, we need to notice what's important. Where does he say something similar what's already out there and where does he say something different because the places that he's different are the places of emphasis if he said if he's restating something that everyone would like he's saying the, the lyrics to a song that everybody knows but he changes a couple it's the places of change where the emphasis would be noted right everyone's like i know i know i know hang on i know i know i know hang on so an example right if i read this statement in our culture we hold these truths to be self-evident Right? You guys know where I'm coming from there. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of sex, money, and power no matter who gets in your way. Now, obviously, I changed one word into a phrase. And you note that if I'm trying to make a statement, my statement comes in where I differ from the original text. So when Paul is is giving these household codes, you need to say, where is he in agreement and where is he differing? Because the difference is the place of emphasis. So, Paul has powerfully said that all who believe are made one in Christ. That doesn't mean he's not trying to say that we all have exactly now the same life situations or the same exact um, roles of behavior within a society. It doesn't mean that we've all, it also doesn't certainly mean if we're one in Christ, that we've been pulled out of the real world uh, and the norms that govern there that, that surround us and shape the social, cultural, and political realities of the world. So, as I said, Christians widely and increasingly persecuted in the Roman Empire, not because they held private beliefs about forgiveness, but because they were upending social order. So, Paul is repeating the household codes of first century Rome, but he's also making some important distinctions, and those are the things we we need to see. Um, By repeating them, he's reminding his readers and us that the way of the revolution of Jesus is a way of love. It's not a way of direct frontal assault. Like Paul is not saying, I want everyone to take up arms and overthrow Rome because look at these unjust household codes that they live by. He was not trying to work a a one-time violent revolution. He's saying, we're trying to sow subversive seeds in love that will eventually have the power to change the world all, all the way across. But he's saying the method of the kingdom of God in the world. It's like Jesus, when he was teaching about the kingdom, it's like a seed planted in the ground that grows up and and begins to bear fruit. It's a lot more like a seed in the ground growing up to bear fruit than it is an army charging the gates. And so Paul, by repeating the household codes of the first century, is saying this is, he's giving us a clue to the pattern of transformation that takes place in the way of Jesus. Christianity's not launching a direct frontal assault on the oppressive realities of their culture. So, Aristotle, shame on him, may have said that wives are permanently inferior, but in the Christian movement, 
Christ is saying that husbands should lay down their lives for their wives as Christ did for the church. This would not have been, this would have been differing from the Roman household code considerably. That's actually in, in a similar passage in Ephesians where it says this, you know, it, it rings offensive to us here, wives submit to your husbands, but then he immediately says to the husbands who would have been listening in community as these instructions were, were given, you have to lay down your lives for, for, your, for your wife the way Christ did for the church. That's a full, complete submission and complete surrender. So there is, in, in the Christian vision of marriage, there is a mutual submission going on. It doesn't mean that husbands and wives are meant to be exactly the same or even occupy all the same roles in their house, but we should not impose on it that, it, that it's talking about submission only in one direction, in the house, right? The institution of slavery was unjust in this time as it has been unjust in all times of history, but it is important to note that uh, the slavery that Paul is talking about, the indentured servanthood in many cases that Paul is referring to, is quite different than the race-based plantation slavery of the American South, which is a scourge upon our country. It's our original sin as a nation, and we're still obviously you know, reeling from the wounds of it all across our, our culture, that human beings would own one another based, you know, for any reason whatsoever, but based on race um, is just an absolute, absolute horror. So... Um, it's really important to note that these seeds of subversive love that are sown, I believe, in this text are picked up by believers throughout, throughout history, right? Many of the leading abolitionists in our world, the leading civil rights um, leaders of, the, of world history, recognize these seeds of subversive love in the way of Jesus, and they let out in them, right? William Wilberforce in England bases his opposition to slavery on his Christian faith, on the dignity of the human individual made in the image of God, loved and died for by Christ, that, that all of us can be redeemed and brought into that, that, that idea that around the table of Jesus, we are absolutely all welcome. So he, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., working for civil rights in our country, is a preacher rooting his life in this, in this message of Jesus. And so we know there's counterexamples, right? Those people who, who in the American South tried to prop up up, uh, uh, an institutional backing for the practice of slavery using the scriptures, we know they're just flat out wrong. <laughs> that they're, they're missing the whole, they're, they're zeroing in and taking things out of context to make their larger point. The, this very letter, the, the party of people who delivered it to the Colossians had a formal slave, Onesimus, who was now fully restored and the instructions are given to the person whose house he used to work in. He is now a full member of the table and should be absolutely sustained in his freedom and able to eat around the table as, as a member. So that's what's happening in the subversive Christian community, even if it wasn't direct frontal assault on all that was going on in Rome as a society. So it won't surprise you that I like how N.T. Wright summarizes this, but I'm going to give it to you. Um, what Paul is offering in this passage is a very brief highway code for household relationships. It is remarkable for several reasons. Perhaps the first is that he doesn't just tell wives, children, and slaves how to behave as many pagan moralists of his day would have done. Their duties are balanced by the corresponding duties of husbands, parents, and masters. This is every bit as revolutionary as what people often wish he had said. For instance, that all slaves should be freed at once, which was unthinkable in his day where slaves did much of the work done today by gas, electricity, and the internal combustion engine. Rather than dreaming of impossible freedoms, he prefers to offer practical practical guidelines. 
I like how Wright summarizes it. I think there's even a step further to say is that he was sowing the seeds of a subversive love that would eventually, like a seed, grow up through the cracks and break apart this dominant culture of the Roman Empire. So, even if we first bristle at what we hear, wives submit to your husbands, children obey your parents, and, and, and we, we don't think Paul is going far enough, let's remember what he's just said. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. He can't possibly mean this for only one type of person in power in that society. He says, we're all members of one body, and this is the revolutionary message of the Christian faith singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, he's gonna say, in everything that you do, let this theology that we've been talking about, this idea of grace and radical inclusion and, and forgiveness and mercy and healing and resurrection. So like, you, you notice this trend in the New Testament letters. There'll be theology unpacked, this is what we believe. This is the revolutionary message of the gospel. Now, this is how you live it out. And if he failed to respond in a real way to the, to the governing practicalities of life, the, the readers of this letter would have been ill-served. It's like, hey, I need to know how this get pulls down into an ordinary Tuesday. How does this get pulled down into my most intimate relationships? How should, if at all, this change how I r relate to my spouse, how I relate to my vocation, how I relate to my children, how I relate to the overarching philosophies of my day? And so there's theology and then there's practice over and over and over again in the New Testament. So, I wanna say that Paul is contending for wholeness and integration. He's, in he's, he's contending for us to be full, full people. Yeah, uh, he's contending for just the and symbol. <laughs> and he means that in the most oblique and poetic ways. Just let it wash over you and draw your own conclusions. And uh, it says wholeness and integration, but you'll just have to trust me. Um, so the way he gets at this is he, he begins to show them that their lives are not first oriented around the uh, outward authorities, specifically the outward authorities of the household. So the Roman Empire oriented the authority in the house around the head of the household, which was, we're going to see in just a second from a commentator, primarily males, but occasionally females. So the, the Roman household code is, code is rooting the authority in the head of the household. Paul is rooting authority in Christ and asking everyone, whatever measure of authority they have in that other system, to realize that they have to go first through the lens of Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection and the humility of the way Jesus lived to understand how they function in society. F.F. F. Bruce, who's a leading commentary, commentator on this, on this letter, puts it this way. The household, familia, was recognized as a stabilizing element in ancient society, and treatises on household administration were common. We've already said that. 
The household was wider than the nuclear family of the Western world today. Pause for a second. So we're not just talking about husband, wife, two and a half kids, golden retriever. We're talking about a whole block of an economic system inside the society where there were extended family and there were, there were, there were, there were servants and there were workers inside of the larger household. And the head of the household was meant to give people their sort of instructions. And, and he was the, the boss of several employees, if you want to think about it that way. It included all who were under the authority of its head. In New Testament times, important. The head of household might be a woman like Lydia of Philippi, Chloe of Corinth, who, who may have not been a Christian, and Nympha of the Lycus Valley, who's referenced in Colossians. But usually the head of the household was a man who exercised within that the authority of a husband, father, and master. And Paul is rooting his instructions to each of those persons in the authority of Christ, not simply in the authority of the head of household. So he's speaking not just to those who are in the weaker social position, which is really important. Right next to them, he is addressing the one who had power. And he's saying, hey, listen, right around the time you start to use your power to manipulate and dominate, remember Jesus. Remember that you have an authority over them. So this was very important, not just to to root the social order in this is what works best for our society, but to say there's an authority over all of us. That authority is God. Now look how God has chosen to deal with us in the person of Jesus. This is something that, that, that encouraged my heart. Every single Greek verb that's used to address someone in power or in weaker social standing in this list of household instructions, every single one of them, and I know you're, you don't necessarily care about Greek verbs, but I have them for you if you wanna look them up. These are transliterations. This is not what they look like in Greek. But every single one of these Greek words that are they're directed to either someone in power or someone under authority in this social structure, every single one of them is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. So whatever he's asking us to do, he's not asking us to do anything that he himself hasn't done and is showing the counterintuitive kingdom, miracle, redemption, wisdom of that thing. So just to have it fresh in your minds, remember how Christ lived. And we have a beautiful summary in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who in being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, he made, he made him being being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Pause for a second. I'm going to read the rest of it. But Christ, the highest possible social standing, the highest possible claim to authority and power and glory, lets go of all of it. And it says he became a servant. He became a slave (laughs) all the way to the point of dying on the cross to show us love. Now, Is that just like a horrific martyrdom, an unrealistic letting go of any self-interest that none of us are going to be able to manage? Here's what happens. The father takes up the cause of Christ, and as he submits everything in surrender, the father delivers on the promises of, of why Jesus did this. Basically, this hinges on trust, but it says, therefore God exalted him. Yahweh, the father, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father. So, 
the, fun, the, the son fully submits, fully surrenders, becomes the least in this example of, of weak social order people, the servant, the slave, and yet he does so because he trusts the father to meet the deepest needs of his life, his purpose, his mission in the world. So you and I will never submit whatever that means, and I want to tell you that it's an invitation and even an instruction for all of us, not just certain groups, but none of us will submit or surrender or trust, if you want to put it that way, unless we really come to believe that the heart of the father towards us is loving that he doesn't just see the deep needs of our life, but he longs to meet them in the very best possible, most healing, healthy, life-giving way. I've come to give you life and give it to you to the full. I have a problem with submission. My guess is you have a problem with submission because we don't really grasp or believe that anyone can be trusted with our lives. Except us. But whatever the example in Philippians 2 is, it's saying that God the Father could be trusted to accomplish the redemption of the world. So healing of the world around you, the exaltation of Jesus to his rightful place, the accomplishment of the plan they had arranged before the foundations of the world. That's the example that's true in Christ. How would that be fulfilled and true in you? Can you trust that in surrendering and submitting in this, in this ethic of Christian love, that you might actually find your truest place in community, your truest place in the world, that you might thrive in that renewed identity, that it might result in the healing of relationships around you and the healing of relationships in your world, and that actually might be some small part of a larger participation in this wider story that the kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in heaven. That would take some trust. And I'm so glad that we have the Garden of Gethsemane moment to show that even Christ's submission wasn't just easy. <laughs> it wasn't like, okay, I guess that's what I'll do. He sweat drops of blood. He said, is there any other way that this could, this could be accomplished? And in the end, when the answer was, there is no other way, he went forward. And whatever reasons got him up from his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, Hebrews says that one of them was for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the joy of what? For the joy of making you and I family, no matter our race, no matter our social standing, no matter our time in history, to bring us in and say, I love you, I forgive you, I heal you, I cleanse you, I bring you in, I, I, I adopt you into my family, I, I make you a full um, a member of the inheritance of Christ. I see you the way I see Jesus. For the joy set before him, he got off his knees in the garden after sweating blood and asking, don't let it be submission. And he went forward to the cross and laid down everything. So, when you hear wives submit to your husbands, when I hear it, what are the great what ifs that are running through our minds? Let's try to be honest about those. What if I get taken advantage of? What if I trust my husband and he leads our family in some particular way that is awful? What if uh, this person has already shown themselves that they are not a competent leader and should not be submitted to? Fair. <laughs> True in my house. In, in many ways. Uh, you, you, the t people meet me, and then they meet Allison, and they're like, I was going to leave the church, but Allison is great. 
She is, I mean, she like defines better half. She, she leads our household in so many different ways. Like there is a level of love and mutual submission in our home that I think is the Christian ideal depicted in this passage and others. Um, but there are some ways where she has, there are some ways where I've done this to her, but there are some ways where she's asked me, hey, I want you to take the lead in our family in this way. I want you, I want you in, the, in these categories, I want you to, you to lead us forward. Paul is asking us to locate our most primary confidence in having the needs of our life and soul met in the person of Jesus. Let's say that one more time. Paul is asking us to locate our most primary confidence in having the needs of our life and soul met in the person of Jesus. People are going to fail us in so many ways. We are going to fail those around us in many ways, but what we are coming to is a trust that God loves us and is able to bear the weight of our soul, the glory of being a human being, to meet the deepest needs of our life. So, Paul is making sure to give instructions not just to those who are in the weaker social positions, but to those in power as well. We should see this as subversive. He is telling each party to be like Jesus. To wives, he's saying, be like Jesus in how you trust and love your husband. Be like Jesus in how you do not seek to control your husband. Be like Jesus in how you allow your husband to serve and protect you. Husbands, be like Jesus in refusing to use your authority for dominance or manipulation, even though that would have been totally an acceptable norm within the first century Roman house code. In fact, I think you can start to hear each of these instructions as be like Jesus in this way. Be like, all the verbs attached to Christ, all the instructions go back to the way of Jesus. So just to, to review the invitation and the instructions, the overall to the whole community, everyone who's listening to that, no matter your social station, you are holy and dearly loved. That's your first identity in Christ. Holy and dearly loved, seen like Jesus and totally a part of the family. Now let your character be shaped so that God's character is formed in you. Now, wives, sub subject yourselves to your husbands by treating them with respect. Why? Because this is how the church surrenders to Jesus. This is how, 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 how Christ surrendered to us for our redemption. Husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Why? Because this is how Christ loves the church. Children, obey your parents. Why? Because Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing, and he said, not my will, but yours be done. Parents, do not exasperate your children. Why? Because God says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Em employees, work for your boss as for the Lord. Why? Because Jesus was a, a, a carpenter in obscurity for 30 years of his life, and that was an essential part of the accomplishment of his redemption in the world. You're in a job that you don't like with a boss that you don't like, feeling like it's not adding up to the dream you had for your life. Christ can identify with that. I don't know how I felt about Joseph, but. Employers, treat your employees with dignity and respect. Why? Because you have a father who has given, your, given you your position and who has dignified every person in the world with, 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 with grace and love. The instructions to every one of the parties in this passage is invited into the Christian life, which is one lifelong imitation of the way of Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to stay with someone who's abusing you. It doesn't mean that you have to stay in a job where there's an unjust tyrant. But it is saying that we can't trust these outward social structures to meet the deepest needs of our soul on their own. So we have to have our confidence and allegiance rooted in something different. 
We are invited to see ourselves enmeshed in a series of crucial relationships of love with Christ at the center. That's your invitation, church, to see yourselves enmeshed in a series of crucial relationships with Christ at the center. There is no one who trusts and follows Jesus, no matter what their station in life, who is not called to submit, to surrender, and to lay down their life for the other. And I think that's actually where the offense of this passage comes in. Because it's the offense to all of our, 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 our modern world. And basically, it's an offense to radical individualism. That we can make it on our own. That we don't really need anyone else. That we're the captain of our own ship. Basically, like the American ideal of radical individualism, at least how it is popularly described, is one of the easiest sells in the world to human beings. Um, your life is your own. You deserve it all. Don't let anything stand in your way. Don't let yourself be oppressed by any bygone obligations on your life. You are free. Do with your life whatever you want. Self-expression is the highest form of living. Anything that dampens or limits your self-expression is, 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 is wrong, is bigotry, is oppression. We are really and truly free. And there are so many ways where that is tremendous, but there's also the reality that you are free to drive down the wrong side of the road. But you are, you are also free to be crashed into headlong because someone else is coming down from the other way. All that our freedoms have given us are, are substantial. I don't mean to diminish them at all. We are so much better that we live in a world where slavery is, is, has been eradicated in many places where it once thrived, even though there is obviously still so much work to do. And Christians should be on the front lines of that work, the front lines of pushing back and eradicating and, ab and seeing, working for the abolition of slavery. But our radical individualism needs to be examined for not just what it has given us, but what it produces in our society as well. We're wrapping up here, if you can believe me. But David Brooks, in his book, The Second Mountain, said something that caught my attention. I've been thinking about it. I think it relates to us and it relates to this. He said, 35% of Americans over 45 are chronically lonely. Only 8% of Americans report having important conversations with their neighbors in a given year. In 1950, less than 10% of households were single-person households. Now, nearly 30% are. The majority of children born to women under 30 are born into single-parent households. These are symptoms of a general detachment. The fastest-growing political group is unaffiliated. The fastest-growing religious group is unaffiliated. Researchers in Britain ask pastors to describe the most common issue they have to address with their parishioners. 76% said loneliness and mental health. Former Surgeon General Vivek Murphy wrote in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. The psychological, social, and moral toll caused by this detachment is horrific. Separate for a minute whether you agree with everything David Brooks says. Separate for a minute from even those individual stats. And just think for a second. We are invited to see ourselves enmeshed in a series of relationships defined by love where Christ is at the center and yet we are living in some sense as a result of our radical autonomy and radical individualism in a world of increasing detachment and loneliness and we're wondering how do I relate to the other? How do I do covenant love instead of just contract love? 
where I stick with you even if you aren't doing what you're supposed to do (laughs) instead of I'll stick with you as long as you meet my demands, right? How do we do that? How do we do real lasting friendship? How, how How do we exist in a world where we're staring at screens all these hours in a day and we're seeing the lives of other people and we're being brought down by, you know, the the greatest thief of our joy, which is comparison, the radical individualism that we live in. If self and self-expression and radical autonomy are at the center of our lives and society, we need to be honest about what it produces. And we need to at least hear that the gospel of Jesus is offering a different way. And. What the and symbolizes here is an invitation to locate a God of radical love in the center of our lives and community. An invitation to locate a God of radical love in the center of our lives and community. An invitation to take up God's example in Jesus and that all of us submit to one another in love and mutual self-giving. And there are going to be times where your mutual self-giving is going to run up against someone who's not doing it as well as you are, who's not giving as much as you are, and you're going to have to ask the question, am I expecting my needs to be met based on the results of my self-giving love to this person, or can I trust a different higher power to meet the needs of my, self, my life, even as this person seems to be utterly failing? Thank you very much, husband. Friend. Spouse, coworker, child, it's not enough. I surely thought this relationship was gonna make it enough and it didn't turn out to. What on earth do I do? It means taking up the example of the Trinity who defer to one another and lift one another up. You get around the Father, he's like pointing to the Son. You get around the Son, he's pointing to the Father. Both of them are saying, you can't come unless the Spirit draws you. Well, it's like, C.S. Lewis called it the dance of the triune love of God and that he's inviting us to dance and defer and lift one another up in the community of his self-giving love. It seems counterintuitive and selfishness is easy to sell because it works for a while. It just doesn't work as thoroughly as we need it to in the depths of our soul. So, the end of this passage that we read gives us an example of this and an engine of this. I'm just gonna comment on it for a second and we're done. Look at what Paul says next. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So first thing that I want you to see, immediately following these these household instructions, here's how you operate in your most intimate relationships on a day-to-day basis. It's mutual, self-giving, submissive love to one another, the way Jesus modeled for us, no matter what state you find yourself in in life. And the only way you're gonna sustain that and not revert back to selfishness and a life of demanding others to revolve around you is how? Devote yourself to a life of conversation with God. The ideal alone, as out there as something that you're supposed to live up to, will not work. You literally have to commune with God. Devote yourselves to prayer. This is the only way you keep a sustained uh, relationship with God, that you keep a sustained level of confidence that God can meet the deepest needs of my life because I'm in relationship, I'm in communion, I'm venting my soul to this God to say, you know about my boss, right? You know about my spouse, right? You know about my kids, right? And I'm venting my soul to this God who is saying, I want you to look to me 
me to meet the deepest needs of your life, not to these very important and crucial other relationships that you're a part of. They're always gonna let you down in one way or another. And if you wanna know what to do when God lets you down, we have a course for that starting in Advent. How long, O Lord? It's a shameless plug. A thorough and ongoing talking and, re- and talking and listening relationship with God is essential for staying enmeshed in this series of relationships with God at the center. Basically, here's the thing. It won't matter very long what your grand intentions are unless you build a practice of communing with God. We've been saying this over and over and over again. The gospel is an absolutely free gift. You don't have to pray to be accepted, but you have to pray to feel connected. You have to pray to, 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 to steward the, the, the relationship. You have to pray to stay intimate. You have to pray to know God. You have to build a practice. If you're wondering why basically apathy defines your spiritual life, if you're wondering why you feel so disillusioned about what God seems to offer and what you seem to be experienced, you might wanna check in the place of practices. Are you communing regularly with God? Are you putting yourself in a place to hear this covenant love on a daily basis? Are you being reminded of your true identity? Devote yourselves to prayer. Build a practice. Learn to pray, to invite the Holy Spirit to shape you, or you're regularly going to be returning to, from centering on love to centering again on self. We have to ask God, God, help me today. This is a prayer I pray almost every day. God, help me today to live in the name of Jesus. Help me to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help me today to see the opportunities where I'm supposed to die to myself and lift you up. I pray whatever it means today that your life would be clear in my life. And then I go, and that, that, that begins, and then I go out and promptly forget it and I'm a jerk, and I have to come back and, and pray again. But like, it's that ongoing conversational relationship that, that return, and, and, and right, the scriptures, remember last week we talked about the practices of the Holy Spirit, the places where the Spirit promised to be working? One of those is in our conversational relationship. The second thing is that Paul is modeling what he's just taught the Colossians to do himself. And it's a subtle way, and you might miss it, but this is Paul who is this well-traveled, impeccably resumed apostle who's literally spread the kingdom of God to the known world. He is in the process of telling everyone about Christ and seeing communities of Jesus spring up in these cities all across the Roman Empire. He's literally working a revolution from a jail cell by the power of prayer and writing people's real identity in Christ and sending it to them. And what does he say to these brand new believers who are mixed up and confused and just starting in Colossians? Pray for me. He somehow believes that it's not just based on the resume or, or acumen or ability or intelligence or, or, or whatever of the individual person, that it is based on God. The revolution is, is one where God is at the center. No other human self is at the center. So Paul, the mighty apostle who's building a church across the world, says, this thing's not going to work, Colossians, unless you also pray for me. It's not just lip service. He's saying this is how the movement is built. It is a relational kingdom. He doesn't lord his authority over them. He asks them for real help that will really matter. Paul is not the center of the movement. Jesus is. This is the mystery of Christ. The one at the very center is the one who has moved out towards us. It's what Advent looks towards. Who has 
given himself, has plunged himself into our story, has, has deferred and lifted us up. The one at the center of the story is the one the most self-giving in love. So we can submit ourselves and our will to others. We can lay ourselves down because the one who's made us family has laid himself down for us. And one thing I think that, that we're not gonna have time to deal with in this passage but is really important is that you can bring your family wounds to the self-giving love of Jesus and you can ask for healing. Because one thing we didn't have time to deal with is that people do take advantage and people do harm and people do live with self at the center. And as powerful as our call is to something different, we're still affected by those realities. We still sometimes cause those realities, those pains. So when I was thinking about what our invitations are from this passage, as controversial as it first hits us, I think it's, it's some simple things that are incredibly difficult that require literally a power greater than ourselves. <laughs> but the first is to take self from the center and put God and God's love there. I think that's the first application of this passage for all of us, and we are all painted with that brush, to take self from the center and put God and God's love there. The second is to build a practice of prayer that can sustain that life of love. Pour your heart out to God. Let God pour his heart out to you. Let the spirit fill your life. The third thing that I wanna, I wanna mention is that you can bring your family wounds to Christ and to Christ's family. And I wanna say that order is important there. Bring them to Christ first. Really pour out your heart because sometimes even well-meaning members of Christ's family will fumble your pain a little bit it's still worth trying. It's still worth it to bring the real stuff that you're going with, the real wounds that have happened to you to other people and not deal with them on your own, but you're not gonna always get the perfect exact response that you wanted. Sometimes that is very painful. So you have to bring them to Christ first. And then know that the revolution that we're looking for in Jesus, his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, it comes by seeds of love and rarely by direct assault. It's a seed growing up through the concrete more than it is an army storming the gates. We live in a world, right, our internet sort of cancel culture has this perverse fruit abounding where we're trying to make the world better by tearing each other down. We're trying to make the world better by, by verbal violence and by saying these people don't matter anymore because they don't think and believe like I do or act like I do or, or know what I know. And that's probably not gonna bring the revolution we're longing for. It grows by seeds of love. So, I wanna invite you. I should have put all the points in white text. I wanna invite you to come to Christ this morning, to, to ask, ask for help, uprooting, dislodging self from the center and putting God's love there sacrificial, abounding, resurrecting, healing love in the center. I wanna invite you to, to, to sustain that in a practice of prayer, not a great ideas about talking to God from time to time, but pouring your soul out to him on a regular basis. And I wanna invite many of you to bring your family wounds to Christ this morning. I'm gonna pray for you, and when I say amen, I'm gonna invite us to stand, and we'll ask the Spirit to lead us in these responses. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you because 
It really, it really is, God, that often the, the passages I wanna run away from when I really look at them and I examine them, I turn them over and your spirit speaks, I find there is surprising, unexpected life that I would have missed. I find that what I, I would have run away from because it didn't initially make sense when the counterintuitive, upside down wisdom of your kingdom breaks in, it begins to do something to me. I pray in the name of Jesus by your spirit it would do something in our church this morning. I pray you would lead each person to know how they are meant to respond, Holy Spirit. You are here, God. I believe you are speaking. Would you speak in a personal way to each person in this room? Would you show them what on earth it means to step away from self-centeredness and self step into the love of Christ? What it means to build a practice of prayer? What it means to really bring our wounds to you the way our fathers and mothers failed us? hurt us on intentionally or unintentionally, the way we are hurting unintentionally or intentionally our kids, the way people have held us back or held us down, acted unjust to us, or just been mean, operating in self-interest. God, we're gonna bring our wounds to you. We trust that you care. And I believe that you can heal. I pray that you would. Lead us, Holy Spirit. Lead us, Holy Spirit, as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen.